this Saturday morning at 7.30, we'll have our uh, monthly men's prayer breakfast. This is a good time. Men get together. We have a good time. We eat a good breakfast. And we talk about a lot of different things that are going on. Sometimes we talk about current events and politics and talk about how the word applies. But ultimately, we get down to talking about the scripture. And one of the things that I've been encouraging everyone to uh, do is to regularly read your Bible, if not daily, at least several times a week, but to try to read through your Bible once a year. And the more we do that, the more we saturate our souls with the Scripture. And so this is an opportunity where the men can come together and talk about what they've been reading, what has impressed them, what questions they might have, what... uh, and sometimes we read things in the Bible, we go, what in the world is that all about? I don't know about you, but that happens to me quite frequently. And then I have to go teach it. I think I ask that question every time I sit down to prepare for a lesson. What in the world is this passage all about? So that's men's prayer breakfast. And then we have our fall picnic. So those who have pickup trucks, those who have kids, those who have games and different things like that may want to volunteer to help out in different areas. And that starts about noon on Saturday, October 20th. And that will be out at uh, Orlando Salas' place out near, uh, just outside of Brookshire. How shall young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments to reflect upon our lives to make sure that we do not have unconfessed sin that needs to be confessed and in silent prayer confess it for forgiveness and cleansing that we may have a time that is spiritually profitable walking by God the Holy Spirit. So after a few moments of silent prayer then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, you are the creator God of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. You have created each of us in your image and likeness, though it has been terribly corrupted by sin. You have, in your grace, provided a solution to sin. And beginning with our individual regeneration, you are at work in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ to restore us to that uh, image is a lifelong process that is never complete until we are glorified and in your presence. And Father, we are impressed as we read the scripture that we are to put you at the very center of everything that we do, all that we are, all that we have, all that we desire to be in this life should be centered upon you grounded in your word which saturates our life and fills us with hope. Hope that despite 
whatever darkness may be in our lives, whatever difficulty or challenges there may be, that there is a purpose, there is a plan, that you are taking us through these tests, these trials, in order to teach us, to mature us, and that to pass the test, we need to take your word and apply it to rest in your strength, in your power, in your knowledge, and to be confident that you will be working in all of these things for good. Now, Father, as we study uh, again tonight about worship, we pray that you would help us to understand that which we study, to focus our attention upon you, to understand your word, for a relationship with you is based on knowledge, knowledge that becomes wisdom, and wisdom that changes us from the inside out and impacts the world around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, today is a significant day. Anybody know why it is a significant day? Ten minutes ago, Yom Kippur began. The Day of Atonement. This brings to a conclusion ten days since Rosh Hashanah, which is literally, it's the head of the new year. Rosh is the beginning or the head. Uh, Rosh Ha is the definite article. Shana is the year. It's the head or the beginning of the year. It's the new year. And that begins a process in Judaism which is supposed to focus upon uh, reflection upon one's life and one's relationship with the Lord. Ideally, this is a good thing, but unfortunately, as in many religious operations, it gets cluttered up with a lot of human works and human good. Some years ago now, we had Rabbi Haas from the uh, Temple Emmanuel here in town come and spoke to the congregation about the High Holy Days and about Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur, as the Day of Atonement, has changed its focus. We don't have the temple anymore, so the actual ritual that takes place is not uh, being uh, enacted anymore. But in, um, in, in present-day Judaism, which is really a evolution from Phariseeism of the, of the New Testament... What we have is a focus upon placating God in a way that will impress upon him uh, the need to keep us alive for another year. And that is done through good works. And actually, although you have heard other pastors, you have heard myself talk about in religious systems that are based on good works, it's all about getting brownie points with God. And there was such a shock in this congregation. You would think you were as well-trained as you have been that this would not be a shock. It's almost as if you thought maybe all these pastors have made this up. And Rabbi Haas stood right here in this pulpit and said, what happens on the Day of Atonement is that God weighs our brownie points, the good things we've done against the bad things. He used that exact language And people were stunned that that's actually what they believed. When that happens, sometimes I think, you know, maybe I need to go back to square one and start teaching at a much more fundamental level. But that's what happens in religion. And that's what's happening with those who are observant Jews as they're evaluating their life today. And they will go through a series of 
prayers and meditations all day tomorrow. It's very, very intense. I've been to uh, some of a Yom Kippur service at um, Congregation Beth Yashurn here in Houston, and it's fascinating to watch and to listen to the prayers. The prayers are often recited in Hebrew, sometimes in English. You have a prayer book with Hebrew on one side, English on the other. They're moving pretty fast. I can generally follow along, but not, I often get lost. But I thought that I would read from one of the prayers. It's a good prayer. It's a prayer grounded in Old Testament Scripture. And therefore, it is not a prayer that is that, that we could not pray. What I think about when I read this is that this is a well-written meditation on the majesty and power of God. It focuses the attention of the worshiper, or it should focus the attention of the worshiper upon God. That is what worship does. Worship is not about how we feel. Worship is about who God is. And in the Amidah, it begins, My Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will speak your praises. Blessed, and as you think about this, you hear the echo of the Psalms. Blessed are you, Lord, our God and God of our fathers, God of Avraham, God of Yitzhak, God of Yaakov, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, exalted God who bestows loving kindness. He possesses everything and recalls the kindness of the patriarchs and brings the Redeemer to their children's children for his namesake with love, King, Helper, Savior, and Shield. Blessed are you, Lord, Shield of Avraham. You are mighty forever, my Lord. You revive the dead, greatly capable of saving. You cause the dew to fall. You cause the winds to blow and the rain to fall. You sustain the living with loving kindness. You revive the dead with great compassion. You support the fallen and heal the ill. And you release those bound, and you fulfill your faithfulness to those who sleep in the ground. Who is like you, master of all powers? King, who causes death and gives life, and causes salvation to sprout. And you are trustworthy to revive the dead. Blessed are you, Lord, who revives the dead. We will sanctify you and revere you like the pleasant conversation of the assembly of the holy seraphim that recite holiness thrice before you. And as it is written by your prophet, and one calls to the other and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The entire world is filled with his glory. Those facing them give praise and say, Blessed is the honor of the Lord from his place. And in your holy words it is written, stating, The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for every generation, hallelujah, praise God. What did you hear there? I mean, with all the study we've done in the Psalms, how much do you hear there that is echoes of, of great statements of the Psalms? And many of these prayers, such as the Amidah, I don't know the exact history of it, but they go back 
very, very far back. And they may even precede um, in, in their original form the, the um, uh, destruction of the Second Temple. They may reflect the faith, and I think they do as they reflect the Psalms, of uh, Old Testament believers. And so, well, there's a little thunder. That helps us to understand that last paragraph that I read, where does that derive? That's Isaiah 6. That's where we started with our worship series uh, back in the spring, talking about Isaiah coming into the presence of God. Last week I started reading a few things just just to give you some ideas and thoughts uh, about from this book called The Private Devotions of Lancelot Andrews. It's translated with an introduction and notes by Effie Brightman and including Lancelot Andrews, which is a short biography written by a well-known poet. You probably studied in English literature. You studied that which he wrote before he was saved and probably not what he wrote after his he was saved, T.S. Eliot. That name might bring back some memories from high school or college. And so he wrote, and as I said last week, Lancelot Andrews was the head of the translation group of scholars who translated the authorized version by, of King James. And he was a man who was gifted magnificently in languages. He knew, knew all of the biblical languages before he was 10 or 12 years of age. He could speak several others fluently and continued to add to that. And he wrote these, and this is something, I, I, I'm repeating this because some of you weren't here last week, but it's important to remember he did not write these to be read by anyone else. He wrote these as acts of personal discipline to focus his own thinking so that when he came to the throne of grace, he had clearly, thoughtfully, conscientiously written what he wanted to say to God. And much of it is reading back to God the words of Scripture. In fact, in the edition that I have here, there are in the margin the scripture references for nearly every line that are written in these in these prayers. So I just wanted to point out that that he he begins this and this is uh, some things he wrote down to think about before praying. Have you ever thought about that? I hadn't thought about that. What scripture should I think about before I pray? He says Thou art careful about many things, but one thing is needful. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Watch ye and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape the things that shall come to pass. That's from the Olivet Discourse. Love the Lord all thy life and call upon him for thy salvation. Humble thy soul greatly. For the vengeance of the ungodly is fire and worms. A man can receive nothing except it can be given. If he prayed, if he prayed who was without sin, how much more ought a sinner to pray? Think about that. That is from one of the church fathers, Cyprian. 
If he prayed who was without sin, how much more ought a sinner to pray? But God is a hearer, not of the voice, but of the heart. That prayer goes on. There was another prayer I wanted to refer to. This is a prayer for waking. How many of you have thought about a specific prayer that should cross your lips before you get out of bed? Thanking God that you took breath in the morning, that you are awake for another day, that it is another day to serve him, thanking him that you have all of the things that you have and praying that you might be able to face the day with what you know about his word and using that to face the challenges of the day. He has a short prayer. A lot of it is from the Psalms. He says, Thou who sends forth the light, createst the morning, makest the sun to rise on the good and on the evil enlightens the blindness of our minds with the knowledge of truth. Lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us, that in thy light we may see light, and at the last, in the light of grace, the light of glory. I'm not reading these because I'm equating them with Scripture, but I'm showing you that this was a common pattern among many mature believers in the 1600s, 17th century. And what they were taught to do and what they did was they kept notebooks. And they would journal. That's real popular today. It's never been something that I thought about doing. I found that journaling, as it was usually explained, was too introspective and too much about me, and there was just something about that that I didn't think was right. That just feeds narcissism. But when we are reading Scripture, to have a notebook nearby to jot down thoughts, impressions, questions, uh, to words to look up later, that's what meditation in the Scripture is all about. It's not emptying your mind of all things, which is what Eastern meditation is all about. It is about filling our mind with the thoughts of God, with the revelation of God, that we can live live it out and live our lives out in worship. If, as we'll see tonight as we're studying in worship in, in Genesis, that worship is the response to revelation. Therefore, if we are not being confronted with what God has revealed in his word, then how can we have a life of worship. And we are all very busy. In fact, I think that one of the one of the problems that a lot of Christians have today is that in our culture there's always got to be stimulation. I think that's a result of existentialism, but that's another topic. We always have to be stimulated. There always has to be light and sound and action and noise and something going on. When you read people like Lancelot Andrews and other uh, Puritans and post-Puritan Christians uh, throughout centuries when they had no television, no movies, no sports, all of these distractions, what they did was they would sit and they would be quiet and they would think about what they read in Scripture and what they think about God, what they, and, and they would write it down. I've got a new book. It's called The Hymn Book. It's a history. It's called The Hymnal, 
but it's a history about hymn books. I didn't realize that there's a difference between a hymn book and a hymnal. The first hymnal that was written, which is like the hymnal you have there, was published in the eight, it was either late 1870s or early 1880s. And a hymnal has the music and the words. Prior to that, going back to the beginnings of the Reformation, people had a small book about the size of these little pocket Bibles that you have that was about three by two and a half and maybe an inch or so thick, and it was called a hymn book. It had the words for the hymns in it. didn't have any music. It just had the words. But think about this a minute. Look through your hymnal sometime and look at just the words. They are good poetry. You've often heard me say in my evaluation of a lot of, if not all of, contemporary Christian music that it is bad poetry. How can a song be good music if it's bad poetry? And it's often bad poetry. You look at just the words and they just say, you know, it's the same thing, line after line after line after line. That is not good poetry. And in the hymn books that were the dearest possession, a lot of people, and one, one thing I found out about this is in many countries where Bibles were banned or burned, hymn books were not. And hymn books provided people with their theology. It provided them with a way to uh, think about the great doctrines of Scripture and was a focal point for helping them in their prayers and in their uh, relationship with the Lord. Hymn books would not be confiscated, but Bibles would be. And so we understand that there's something about the, the richness and the depth of the spiritual experience of these great men and women of God who from that deep personal walk with the Lord wrote these incredible lyrics. Now, not all old hymns are bad. I mean, not all old hymns are good. Uh, it's not an issue of age. It's an issue of quality. It's an issue of doctrinal accuracy. It's a it's an issue of depth, and you read some of these things, and that's why I'm reading these these um, things written by Lancelot Andrews, is we just see that we don't produce people who write that quality. You go to your neighborhood Christian bookstore sometime and pick up, in, and I'll say go back to the early 1900s and pick up devotional books. They don't have that depth. Why don't they have that depth? because the people who wrote them don't have the depth. They're often, especially if they get more recent, they often are just nothing more than stories, and they don't have any depth of doctrine or theology or relationship with God undergirding them. They just, they're designed to inspire, to motivate, but not to bring a person into a closer, more significant fellowship with God. And that's what we're learning about worship as we go through passages and as we continue our study in in Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis 28 tonight. We'll review a couple of things. But Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22, which is when Isaac, excuse me, Jacob comes to a 
to Bethel, and God speaks to him. And his response is that he's afraid. I pointed out some lessons back about how we have these hymns or choruses that talk about, oh, I just want to see Jesus. But when we look at the scriptures, people who saw God didn't come away with a rosy glow and a warm, sentimental feeling. They were shaken to their very core. Isaiah fell on his face when God gives this vision to uh, Jacob. He is filled with fear and awe of God. We think of the Apostle John, who is the one whom the Lord loved the most, who has a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, appears to him on the Isle of Patmos, and he falls down as if dead. I don't think right now that most of us could handle seeing Jesus. That's because we don't, if we think we could, it's because we don't have the right biblical understanding of what's going on. So worship involves an element of fear and awe. But it's because of what the content of the Word says. It's not because it's manufactured artificially through gimmicks in church services. And that's what's happened a lot, because there is a lack of understanding of who God is and really teaching and explaining who God is from the pulpit. What happens is that to create those feelings, there's a reliance upon dimming the lights, having candles, incense, um, fog machines, all kinds of different things are used to artificially generate this this kind of mentality. But see, the mentality is supposed to be driven by content, by what is going on in between our ears as we respond to the revelation of God. You're familiar with this chart. I'm remodeling it a little bit to put holiness at the very top because that word holiness, God is a holy God. And holiness means he's unique. He's unique and distinct in each and every one of these categories. The word unique is a word that if you haven't ever written or you haven't done well in English, you didn't learn that you never modify the word unique with any other word. Nothing can be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. You can't have anything that is very unique or really unique or greatly unique, it's either unique or don't talk about it. You don't modify it. And uh, and you hear people, especially news media and everybody just destroys the English language and then we all end up saying these things that are grammatically incorrect and linguistically incorrect because we listen to people who are not good in the English language. But here I have listed 10 attributes I read this last week that in Judaism they emphasize the ten attributes of God. I haven't had time to look that up to see if they're the same ten. But we have ten. God is sovereign. He rules his creation. God is righteous. He is the absolute standard for everything. Everything, right or wrong, all ethics, everything is measured against his standard. Justice is the application of his standard to his creation. Love is God's desire for the absolute best 
for his creatures. And since only God is omniscient and omnipotent, only God can truly love because only God knows what's best for his creatures. He is eternal. He has eternal life. Life itself is in God. In his name, the sacred tetragrammaton in the Old Testament, Yahweh, means I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. I always existed. There never was a time when I didn't exist. There will never be a time when I don't exist. I am life itself. When Jesus comes, in the prologue to the Gospel of John, John says, Uh, The Word was with God, the Word was God, and in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is life itself. And we don't stop and think about that enough. What does it mean that Jesus is life? Twice he says this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Break it down. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Because it's juxtaposed with resurrection, we think of that as being being raised from the dead. But when he says, I am life, he means much more that he is life itself. Apart from him, there is no life. That's why when man is separated from God, he is spiritually dead. That's what happens in the garden. And then in John fourteen seven, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Break it down. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Twice he makes this statement himself that he is life itself is eternal. He is omniscient. That means he knows all the knowable. He will get into this more in Ephesians 1, but he knows not only everything that will happen, but everything that might happen. And his knowledge of what will happen, does, though it makes it certain, does not determine it. There, there's a heavy thought. Go home and chew on that. We'll lay that out a little more as we go forward. He's omnipresent. He is present everywhere to his creation. He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. There's nothing that God can't do to accomplish his will. He can't do squirrely things like make a square a circle. That's just insane, and you always have to find some uh, silly unbeliever trying to say, well, can God make a square a circle or a circle a triangle? And uh, that defies the definition of the terms, and that's silliness. Veracity, he's absolute truth itself. Jesus said, I am the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. And he is the word. He is the truth, absolute truth. And immutable, he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I wanted to review that. Because as we went through Abraham, and we talked about Abraham and his worship of God in the last, uh, the last lesson, and then as that was focused on announcing and proclaiming the essence of God, who God is, and what he did. That's the essence of what it means to call on the name of the Lord. And then we saw that over the course of his life, you know, we see the sacrifices that he makes, We see his trust in God as he uh, goes to rescue the captives from Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain to rescue his nephew after they had been uh, captured by the uh, confederacy of Amraphel, uh, who was from Shinar, the king of Shinar, and how he comes back to Jerusalem and uh, there at that time known as Salem, He meets this Gentile, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, 
and he gives a tithe, 10%, a free will offering. There's no mandate at all. It's another uh, six, 700 years before Moses will legislate a tithe. He gives uh, 10%, not of his possessions. He gives 10% of the plunder that he recovered from the enemy troops. That's what he gave to Melchizedek in gratitude to God, and then the rest of it went back to the people. But 10% went as a gift to God. So what we can see there is that he forced all of the citizens of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities of the plain to give 10% of what was stolen from them to God in gratitude. He was in charge. But he learned some other things about God in those chapters from chapter 12 to 22. He learns that God's alive. He learned that God is the living God, which he refers to in chapter 22. That's always in contrast in the Old Testament to the idols who are made of wood and stone, and they're not alive. So every time you think about the fact that God is a living God, it it, it also foreshadows the fact that Jesus is the life and that Jesus would be raised from the dead and conquer death. God is a living God. But God also speaks. The gods of the pagans, Baal, uh, Osiris, Isis, Zeus, these are not gods that spoke to people that showed up and talked to them or sat down and ate with them as God came and ate with Abraham. Uh, God speaks in Deuteronomy 5.26, Moses writes, For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? He's talking about what happened in Exodus chapter 3, which I was hoping I would get to tonight. We may or may not make it there. But that he is the living God. He sees that God appears to him. This has not happened with other gods. God appeared to him in Genesis chapter 12. We don't know what, how God appeared to him because later when, Mo, when God appears to Moses, he won't let Moses actually see him. He just sees a manifestation of his presence. The same thing with the Jews. When he is, God is on Mount Sinai, they see the, 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 what may be the sapphire um, uh, throne or floor of the throne, the pavement of his throne room, but they don't see God. So this isn't a direct beatific vision where they see God, where Abraham saw God himself. But it wasn't a subjective impression. He's not, well, God appeared to me, and it's in his mind somewhere. It is an objective appearance. When God spoke to Abraham, if you'd been there with your little MP3 recorder, your little video camera, your iPhone, you could have recorded it. There was something there. It was objective. It wasn't subjective. He is a living God who speaks and who appears. He's a God who makes and keeps promises. That's the major lesson in in the life of Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham that through his seed, the whole world will be blessed. But Abraham is getting to where he's too old to have children, and Sarah can't have children. She's barren. And so uh, God has promised that this seed is going to come through their loins. It's going to come from them, and God keeps that promise. 
That shows that God is the creator of all life. He's the creator of human beings, and he can override the natural processes of decay and death. God is a God who makes promises. So when Abraham is struggling to believe that promise in Genesis 12, 13, and 14, when God tells him to take Isaac, who uh, Jewish tradition says he was 37, I don't know if he was 37. I think he was probably much older. Most people portray him as a young lad or 20-something. Remember, Abraham lived to be about 175, so 37 is just a young kid compared to 175. But he took Isaac up to Isaac knew exactly what was going on. Abraham explained what all this. So it's not only an act of faith on the part of Abraham, it's an act of faith on the part of Isaac. He's trusting God as well. And God promised to bless Abraham's descendants like the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore through Isaac. So God, so a writer of Hebrews tells us he thoroughly understood that God could raise Isaac from the dead. So by that time, Abraham finally understood when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And that's a good thing for us to learn as well. He learned that God is a sovereign ruler over all creation in Genesis 14, that God gives him the victory over the uh, armies of the Amraphel coalition. He learns that God is a just ruler in Genesis 18 and that he is also righteous. That's that whole episode where God reveals to him that he's getting ready to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham appeals to his justice. It's a great picture of intercessory prayer. That intercessory prayer there, he is praying for the deliverance of Lot and his wife and their their daughters, and he he presents a case to God that God would not be a righteous judge if he took their life because they were righteous. And he refers to the possession of imputed righteousness on the part of Lot and his family. They were believers. They weren't living a righteous life, but they were declared righteous by faith. And he learned that God owns the real estate that he promises. He promises to give him this land, and God is the one who ultimately owns all real estate, and he is the one who uh, can make the decision about who lives where, and he is the one who sets uh, the boundaries. So Abram learned a lot about God during those Years from the time he was 50 until he was probably 120, 125, something like that, uh, when uh, Genesis 22 takes place. And what we learn from all of this is that in worship, worship is always God-centered. It's always theocentric. It's not about me. It's one of the things you'll note if you read the uh, historic classic hymns that they're all about who God is and what he did for us. It's not about me. It's not about talking about me. In fact, if you read the Psalms, you'll notice that very little is said about the psalmist and his feelings or about his circumstances. They're given, and when they're given, they're given in a very abbreviated form. And yet, if you were to ask people in the congregation to stand up and to uh, give a descriptive praise of God, 
they would stand up and they would talk on and on about all of their horrible problems and very little about how God delivered them because we are so self-absorbed. And that's the nature of our sin nature. So Abram learns uh, all these things about God. And when I closed last time, I talked about uh, that worship involves burial by faith. And it, what, what I wanted to point out there, we were running fast there at the end, is that typically in the ancient world, the body went back to your homeland. You would be taken back to where you were, and they were from Haran in the north. We'll look at that in a map. And instead of taking Sarah back to the family homeland, he said, this is our home. It is an act of faith that God has given us this land, and I'm going to purchase part of it and bury us here because this is the land God has promised us. He is, it is a statement of faith. It changes how we view the future and understanding our hope. That is the focal point there. It is a message of hope that we're going to be here. Our descendants, for generations untold, will be here. This is our land. It is a statement of faith in the, in the, and confidence in the plan of God. And so we see that he is making a decision about burial that's contrary to culture. And that's what happens with everybody who becomes saturated with the Word of God is you're going to find that more and more your views, your beliefs, your opinions, your decisions run counter to what's popular. They run counter to the culture because the culture is operating on human viewpoint and operating on a myriad of false religions and false philosophies and not on the eternal truth of God's word. So the idea of the burial teaches that belief in the future promise of God, the hope that he gives us, changes where and how we will be buried. Uh, The Egyptians did something different or similar, but they perverted it. And so Abram is making a statement that this is now their home based on the promise of God. So let's take a look at the map. Big picture, so you can't read all the little names on here, but I've circled them. Over here on the far right, lower right, is Ur of the Chaldees, where Abram was from. God called him from there to go to a land that he would show him. He left. He went to where his family was uh, originally from in Haran, which is in northwest Syria. And then after his father died, they left there, and God leads them down to the land that he has promised them. The places I've circled here in the far north are Dan, in the far south, Beersheba. You will read through the scripture, and it talks about the land of Israel. It goes from Dan to Beersheba. And then in the middle, I have the area around Shechem, uh, which is about maybe 10 miles north of Jerusalem. Here's a larger map, gives you a little better idea. Uh, down here, you have, uh, you have Jerusalem or Salem right here. Here's Bethel. And I located here. Shechem is here in the north. I'm at Bethel and I are about 10 miles north. It's probably another 15 to 18 miles to get to Shechem. So this is the area that we're talking about. Now, after Abraham has grown old, Isaac is his progeny, and Isaac marries Rebekah. But before he marries Rebekah, he has this competition with his brother Esau. 
and he tricks. See, that's the problem with Jacob, is Jacob, the name means a heel grabber. This is an, an idiom for someone who's a deceiver, someone who's always trying to gain the upper hand. Uh, he and Esau are twins. As they are born, Esau comes out first, but it's like Jacob is grabbing his heel, wanting to pull him back so that he can get ahead. This becomes a picture of his character. He is a conniver, a schemer. He's a con man. He's always trying to get the upper hand, even when he knows. And he would know from the prophecy that was given to, uh, given at his birth that the older Esau would serve the younger, who is Jacob. And that Jacob, therefore, was given through this oracle at the time of his birth, a promise from God, that he is the one through whom the seed promise would go. But yet he's always trying to manipulate things to get the blessing. So when Esau goes out to hunt, he dresses up in the uh, wool and leather of animals that have been slain. He he rubs their skin all over him so he smells like he's been out in the woods. And his mother, um, his mother uh, Re- uh, Rebecca, is conniving with him. And so she makes a, a meal that would be the meal that a hunter would make. He brought in some venison or some wild boar or whatever. And this was Isaac's favorite meal. And so he tricks him then, and Isaac gives him the blessing. Now, this blessing is more than just bless you, my son. Okay, this is a divine oracle. It is irreversible. It is made by the patriarch of the clan, and this is it. And it is a recognition that even though it's done under false pretenses, that is God's plan, that the blessing which was announced at his birth would go to Isaac and not to Jacob. But he does it on his own in the power of the flesh. And this is what we see all through a study of Jacob's life is he's trying to get the blessing apart from God, doing it in his own effort and in his own strength. So when he does that and he tricks um, his father Isaac into giving him the blessing, it really upsets Esau. Esau is just fuming. He's got steam coming out of his ears. And his face is red, and he wants, to, and he is breathing threats against Isaac. He's going to kill him. And we're going to see a repetition of Cain killing Abel. But Rebekah intervenes, and Isaac gets out of town as fast as he can. And so they're, they are living at that time down here in Beersheba, in the far south, just on the north end of the Negev. And so he heads up this trail, which you can still follow today. You can go over to Israel and rent a dirt bike or four-wheel vehicle, and you can go along the, the trail of the patriarchs. And it is still visible in many places. They have it marked, and they've uncovered uh, different places. And he heads north. And then we come to this place uh, where he is going to camp, and he's going to have this face-to-face encounter uh, with God at this this location, and you know what we see here with with Jacob is he's he's like many of us. He just sort of fumbles and bumbles along. He tries to outwit God and outwit other people to get what's his, rather than trusting God. And 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 yet, because God's made this promise, God's going to bring it to pass. 
but Jacob is pretty much at this stage spiritually oblivious. Through most of his life, I think he was spiritually oblivious. He had a few high points. This is one of those high points. And uh, he's going to wake up from it, and he's going to say in verse 16, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. It's like, wow, what was that all about? But the Lord was there, and this is a significant event in the biblical flow of events. It is a time of worship, and we will see again a reaffirmation of the point I've been making, that worship is a response to revelation. Now, how do we get revelation today? God's not going to appear to us in a dream or a vision, but he speaks to us through his word. That's why I keep saying we need to read the Word. We need to think about the Word. We need to meditate on the Word, for that is how God speaks to us today. And worship, then, is a response to God speaking to us. And so what happens is, as we look at the episode here, uh, Jacob has fled, and he's headed north, and he comes to this location that we know later is Bethel. That is uh, this location right here. It's a location where, if we go back to Genesis 12, when Abraham first built an altar and called on the name of the Lord in Shechem, he headed south one day's journey, and he camps between Bethel and Ai, right in the middle. And a highway runs about 200 yards just uh, east of that location now, and you can stop there, and it just you know you just get goosebumps. Now, this is the exact location that Isaac is. But all we're told about is he came to a, he came to a certain place. And we're not told, because it's not important here initially, uh, what that place is. And um, he just, in verse um, 11, it says, So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night, because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place. Okay, let me skip ahead here. He took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. Now, he didn't put it under his head. It's not a stone pillow. He stands this up at his head. So there's something going on there that would have resonated in that culture. Uh, I'll talk about standing stones in a minute. But for some reason, he stands this stone up. Standing stones were often used to mark boundaries. They were uh, mark a burial place or as a something significant in an altar to represent the deity. So he stands up one of these stones at his head, and he lays down in that place to sleep. Then he has a dream. God speaks through dreams. This is not a normal dream. And he has this dream of a ladder uh, that's set up on the earth. Now, the word, this is a little interesting play on words that's going on here because the word for ladder here can also mean a staircase. And he's going to name this place Bethel, which means the house of God. And he sees this as the, he going up the ladder, you're going to the gate of God or the entrance of God. So this is Genesis chapter 28, but if you've been carefully reading through in the Hebrew, if you were Jewish, you'd get it, get the pun. Back in Genesis chapter 11, there's a, a group of people who 
come under the influence of Nimrod, and they're building a great city, and they build a ziggurat, which is a like a pyramid. And they'll on top of the pyramid, they place a temple. And so the staircase on that temple is referred to by this same word in, in Akkadian. And so when they're done, they're all proud of themselves and what they're going to accomplish, united against God, and they name the place Bob-El. Now, Bob-El in Akkadian means the gate of God. So they're thinking they've got entry to God, but God's going to come down and confuse the languages so that in Hebrew, the Babel means a confusion of languages. The word has the same sounds, same spelling, but it has a different meaning in Hebrew. So there's, there's humor there. The, the Holy Spirit uses a lot of these kinds of things to point out how God just sort of sticks his finger in the eye of the pagans and says, nah, 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 nah. Because God has no respect for pagan religion. So there's this play going on here with the words, and he sees this staircase to heaven, and the angels of God are ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it. He stands literally at the top of it. Now that's interesting because that word top shows up later when it's referring to the top of the standing stone. Behold, the Lord stood at the top of it, and he said, I am Yahweh Elohim, God of Abraham, your father, and God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to your descendants. Now, probably up to this point, he wasn't sure. He knew that God was the God of Abraham and the God of uh, Isaac, but he didn't know if he was the one who was going to get the blessing for sure. And this is it. This is the reiteration and the confirmation that God is giving the covenant to uh, Jacob and that Jacob is going to be the one who receives it. He's, and so we're told, the land on which you lie, I will give to your descendants. So what happens after this, what happens after this is um, that God is going to, uh, that, that, excuse me, that Jacob is going to respond in worship by setting up this standing stone as an altar. So worship is a response to revelation. And then we come to Genesis 28:14. God continues the promise that all your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Continues, you're going to have the same promise. I will confirm the promise to you, and I will make it happen just as I promised to Abraham and Isaac. And then God says, Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. Now, this is the promise specifically to Jacob. God says something distinctive here. He says, for I am with you. I want you to notice this because that phrase, I am with you, shows up again and again and again throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And this is a term that enters into the uh, liturgy of the church. In the early church, you have a greeting that goes on. Even to this day, there are Christians in many, uh, especially Eastern denominations, that when they greet another 
uh, person, a Christian, they say, the Lord be with you. It comes from this greeting where God has promised that he will always be with us. He goes on to say in this promise, I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Now that further clarifies the second part of the first line, I am with you and will keep you. That's that word shamar again that we saw back in Genesis chapter 2. And it has the idea of guarding and protecting. I will guard and protect you. See, when God put Adam into the garden, he said, I want you to tend and keep the garden. Most people think that that means he's supposed to be a farmer. But the words there relate to the service of a priest. When they're used together in Leviticus, they always refer to the service of a priest. The idea of keeping is the idea of protecting and guarding. That's what God is saying here. wonder what Adam was supposed to be protecting and guarding the garden from. Could be Lucifer, the serpent. But we have this other promise that runs through the Old Testament and the New Testament where God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. See, I am your God is parallel to I am with you. It is that special promise of God to those who believe in him in the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, 5, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. It's a promise that eventually there will be a restoration of Israel to the land. In Jeremiah 1.8, do not be afraid of their faces, that is the enemy, for I am with you to deliver you. Jeremiah 1.19, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you again and again and again. How many times can we make this principle part of our prayers? God, this isn't just God saying, I'm with you, I'm omnipresent. But this is God saying, in all of the promises and blessings I have given you as a believer, Old Testament would be different, New Testament is distinct as members of the church age, all that I have given you, I promised, I am with you always, Jesus says. Uh, Jeremiah 15, 20, 30, 11, and 46, 20, we have the same phrase, I am with you to save you. It's not just a omnipresent presence. It is he is there to be involved in our lives to accomplish that which he has promised to bring it about and to uh, preserve and to uh, protect us. It's not just an empty saying, which unfortunately when we use phrases from scripture like God bless you, Lord be with you, that pretty soon it loses its meaning, its content, it just becomes uh, empty words. But this is a promise that God is going to be with Jacob and provide everything he promised to him, all of the Abrahamic promises. And this continues to all of Israel. Haggai 1.13 spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. I am going to bring about that which I have promised you and I will accomplish it. Haggai 2.4, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, and be strong, Joshua. They were the ones who brought the first, uh, the first Jews back from Babylon as they're rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. Uh, the high priest says, this is what the Lord says, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. 
God is with us to protect us, to provide for us, and to fulfill the promises that he has made to us. Then we go into the New Testament. So when Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he gives the Great Commission right there at the end of Matthew, and he says, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Wonder what they thought. Now, these are Jews who are fully cognizant of what all these phrases in the Old Testament, this is something only God says, I am with you always. This is another evidence of Jesus is God. I am with you always. To do what? To accomplish what I have determined to accomplish, to provide for you to accomplish uh, the purposes that I have set forth for you, for I am with you. And then in Acts 18.10, he, Jesus appears to, when he appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, this in Acts 18.10, Saul is repeating what happened on the road to Damascus, and he says, this is what Jesus said to me, for I am with you. See, Jesus repeats it specifically, this apostolic promise specifically to, to Paul. So then Jacob wakes up. He recognizes that the Lord is there, and he says he's in this place. I didn't know it, and he's afraid. The next verse. You get face-to-face with God, the response is fear. It's not warm fuzzies and emotion and sentimentality and, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Now, that's great hymn and understood a certain way. That is true for the church-age believer, but that's not what's going on here. God has made a promise to him, and he has seen God face to face, and that is a fearful and awesome thing. And then he says, this is none other than the house of God. What makes it the house of God isn't that there's an edifice there. It's that God's presence has been there, and God's presence has set that area apart because God has been there. This is none other than the house of God, that's what Beth El means. Bet or Beit is the second word. Beit Lehem, it's the house of bread. It's the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph Beit. It means house. Uh, the house of God is Bethel, and this is the gate of heaven. Ooh, not Babel, but Bethel is the gate of heaven. Jesus plays on this in John 1. He says, when he meets Nathaniel, and remember in John 1, 49 to 51, Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus says, you say this because I saw you under the fig tree? Well, you'll see greater things than these. And then he said, most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon a staircase to heaven. Is that what he said? No, he replaces the staircase with himself. Because he's the staircase, he's the fulfillment of the staircase. He's the one who opens the door, opens the gate to heaven because of his work on the cross. So Jacob rises early in the morning. I hate to say this to you people who aren't morning people, but God often seems to be a morning person. Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. Now, think about in that culture, he didn't have any animals with him. Remember, he's running for his life. He thinks Esau's going to catch up with him and kill him, and he's going north to find a wife, so he doesn't have a whole lot with him. 
What he does have is oil. Oil is important. You, you anoint yourself with oil. It's necessary for keeping your skin dry and lots of other cosmetic purposes. You use it to cook with. You use it to make bread. Uh, you use it to fry. Oil is expensive and very important. So he is going to take the most expensive, valuable thing that he has with him. And in a free will offering, nobody legislated this. This is his act of worship in responding to God. He pours oil on top of the stone. And he calls the place Bethel. And there's a picture of a standing stone there. Uh, actually, that is a standing stone. I think it's in the uh, Israel Museum at, um, um, a rock, from a rod. That is the original uh, makeup. So that, that would be set up to represent for, for uh, I, uh, Jacob. He's representing the staircase with this. And that's indicated by certain common vocabulary, Hebrew vocabulary from the beginning of the story to this part of it. He calls the place Bethel, but the name of the city, of that city, had been Luz previously. A lot Later on, it's going to be just called Luz. And this is one of those uh, situations in the Bible where you have an earlier Canaanite name, and then it is replaced later with the Hebrew name. And sometimes it goes back and forth, and people will come along and say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. And it's not any different. If you had been with writing a book about Cortez invading Mexico, and you say that he captured the city known as Tenochtitlan, then you would say, well, I never heard of it. Well, that's because it's known now by its modern name, Mexico City. And so most people would say that Cortez conquered Mexico City, but it wasn't called Mexico City back then. It had a different name. And so the Bible uses these names, both the antique name, the ancient name, as well as a more modern name, but it doesn't indicate a contradiction at all. This reminds us of what happens back in Genesis 22, verse 14, when Abraham had sacrificed Isaac, and afterwards he calls the name of the place Yahweh Yireh. That's how it's in the King James, or Jehovah Jireh, if you read the English in the King James. It means the Lord will provide, and in the mount of the Lord it will be provided, or it will be seen, literally. There's an ambiguity in the word uh, that is used there. And so later we're going to see that Mount Moriah becomes the central focal point of worship. That's not the modern Temple Mount today. But for many years prior, when, after the conquest, it was at Bethel until it got paganized. And then they moved to Shiloh and set up the tabernacle, the tabernacle there. And then Jacob made a vow. If God will be with me and keep me, watch over me in this way uh, that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, if the Lord shall be my God by doing these things. And in your English Bible, it has another and, but that's not a good translation because the word, that the conjunction there that's used for and can also mean then. And it, it, what he is saying is, if God's going to do this, and I know he will, then this stone which is set up as a pillar of God's house is one, and I will surely come back to it, and I'm going to worship here. That's, that's what he is saying here. But he doesn't remember it long. He fails the prosperity test. And literally the next verse says, so Jacob went. But it doesn't say Jacob went. It says Jacob picked up his feet. 
He's dancing for joy. He is skipping along. He, God has made them this great promise, and God's going to bless him. And he just takes off on his journey north and quickly forgets about God as we read on to the rest of the story. So what we see here is important principle. We'll see it reiterated again, that worship is different from anything else that goes on in our life. Unfortunately, in many churches, what they're, the principle they're following is to make the church comfortable for unbelievers so that it's just like everything in their life. Worship is distinct, it's unique, it is holy. That's why the word holy is used. And worship is the response to God. The depth of our understanding of God and our interaction with his revelation is a direct corollary to the depth of our worship. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to think through the examples of worship that you had given us. For As Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is for our benefit as an example to us. Help us to think about you, to carve out that time in our life when we can stop and reflect and that we can set aside the distractions to spend time focusing on you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.